Hi folks, this is Alan Watt, and it is December the 1st, 2006. Outside, there's a winter storm, the snow coming down and the wind a-howling, and it's one of our new storms because it's stretching all the way from British Columbia on the west coast, and the jet stream's doing a right-angled turn and going straight across Canada. Uh, something that never used to happen for those who can remember the old uh, weather reports on television from years ago. It used to be quite interesting to, to listen to the different weather in different provinces across the country, and now they can standardize it pretty, pretty well with alteration of the jet stream. Uh, for those who think this cannot be done, check into the, the treaty on the EMP and HARP uh, treaty, which was signed in the late 70s at the United Nations. It's quite fascinating to see that so many people who have swallowed their conditioning uh, completely will argue that things cannot be, as you say, because the mainstream media hasn't told them. And they'll stick to that in their disbelief that, that things can be so incredibly controlled. And yet, what I've said so far is just scratching the surface. Tonight, listen very carefully, because the evidence has been given out over the years by those concerned in the implementation of specific sciences sciences which were understood in ancient times simply given different terminology and implemented and as I've said many times that which has been used before successfully in society and culture can be reintroduced at any time in the proper sequence and it will work the same way as the first because human nature hasn't really changed Back in the 1960s, going into the 70s, a new phenomena was diagnosed, you might say, by psychiatrists across the Western world to do with a form of schizophrenia and its manifestation. Prior to that period, schizophrenia used to take tremendous and always predictable courses to do with paranoia, uh, voices speaking to them. And because the old system of control was religion, very often it took a religious form. So the dialogue of the person was often religious in nature. Or they'd see angels or demons and they'd go around crossing things in, in hospital wards, crossing televisions, which isn't a bad idea, maybe. Or maybe a sledgehammer is even better, eh? Um, so, this new phenomena came as science was making its headway through the media, changing us from a, a black-robed priesthood to the white-coated priesthood of science. But... Computers were relatively unknown 
by the public. They didn't have the... You couldn't go and buy one and take it home with you. But the odd thing was, this new phenomena, this new way of manifesting a particular illness, it took everybody by surprise because different people were being diagnosed as having schizophrenia and those patients were complaining that they had chips implanted in them. Chips which were somehow connected to some computer which was controlling them. And being adaptive, psychiatry across the, the Western world simply accepted this new phenomena, didn't go too much into the whys or wherefores, and I'm sure there's a reason for that because psychiatry and psychology, not the lower forms but the higher forms, have been used intensively for (laughs) thousands of years, again under different names, for control purposes. And many of the big consultants in psychiatric hospitals are members of the controlling organizations They have memberships in them. And many of them also are connected with countries' intelligence services. Experimentation was really taking off in the the 40s and 50s and 60s into techniques of of mind control by various uh, techniques. As again, a form of microcosm where you have a closed society a society within a society which is left alone, and that's the psychiatric hospitals. So much could be done there quietly and on an experimental basis. And we've seen the big one, which blew into the public's domain, which was the MK Ultra experiments carried out in Canada by uh, Ewan Cameron. But th- this was happening across the world in other places too. But this odd phenomena of having chip implants, before anybody heard of a silicon chip, and the remote control of some computer guiding them was a strange phenomena. And if you dig into the old books, you'll find this being queried by by different professionals involved at the time, but not as much query as there should have been. Some of these people had been in the military. Some of them had, in fact, I think they all had minor operations. Other ones had been in hospitals for minor operations, uh, too young for the military. But there's always a common denominator, and I'm sure if the public had access to more information, it would be very evident that chips were being implanted and tested out on the individuals who eventually were locked up, often for life, and they were studied intensively because this was a shape of things to come something which has been openly discussed, at least semi-openly, 
at world meetings of scientists paid for by government taxpayers' money concerning chipping the entire population off the planet, like the Loyola University meetings they have. And you can still find at least the abbreviated uh, version of that particular meeting held there just uh, three or four years ago where they talked about chipping the entire population. And oddly they said that there were, there were regional computers set up to manage each individual. In other words, you, you, they'd pro, these supercomputers would program each individual to do certain tasks per day, etc., and monitor your, your chemical balance. And no doubt you'd have to take certain drugs and so on. And you would have no say in the matter because you would not be you anymore. You'd, you'd simply be an automaton programmed. Chipping in the brain, chipping in the spine, generally was the complaint of these patients back in the 60s and 70s. And that's exactly where they'd interact with your nervous system if there was a chip implant and messages could be programmed into your hardwiring system, your, your spinal system, your, your nervous system, right into the brain itself, a two-way street. We also saw the outbreak of certain teenagers who began the first school shootings at the same time. Back in 1979, Brenda Ann Spencer, who was 16 years old, who went to Grover Cleveland Elementary School, walked in, this is in California, and she walked into the school and began to shoot people. And I think she killed a few. And it stunned the American population at the time as to this senseless act. And what was even more senseless was the response she had when questioned as to why she did it. And like all people who are under forms of mind control, which is also similar to schizophrenia in that the, uh, the, the, the emotions are blunted. The, the normal responses and emotional responses, emotive they call it, are blunted. She, she just said flatly that she didn't like Mondays. That's why she did it. Monday. Tell me why I don't like Monday. 
Our thoughts and our opinions and the direction that we go in in our lifetime is always guided by the makers of media, books, movies, and so on. The big foundations which are heavily involved, always have been heavily involved in the direction we take of culture, creation, and manipulation. The same foundations that Mr. Weishaupt talked about where he said that by the creation of very wealthy foundations, they would direct the future of mankind. These foundations are hand in glove with governments because they all use the secret societies or societies with secrets, as they like to call themselves, to ensure allegiance to the agenda. Those who have sworn allegiance to these societies, these are grown men, supposedly. Grown men don't take oaths lightly, especially death oaths, should they break their word. In the beginning was their word. You can't break it. Only Moses is allowed to break the law because he threw the first two stones down when he got angry with the people and smashed them. He was the first lawbreaker, which is another story again about the above and below system that runs the world. The foundations guide everything. The Rockefeller Foundation, uh, being one of them, founds hundreds of non-governmental organizations, as they like to call them. Non-governmental organizations uh, would like to th make you think they're just grassroots and there's someone in their home that does something out of uh, a care for mankind or, or animals or whatever it happens to be, or even the ones into UFO research, etc. The Rockefeller Foundation runs them all, and by running them all, they guide them all. Whereas to give out fake news or simply to, to make us fantasize our whole lives away without realizing what's really going on, but they do run our lives, and they always, well, they have for hundreds and hundreds of years. They fund specific authors, always, always, both non-fiction and fiction, to give us our thoughts and opinions. So many of the scientific exposés put out into society have a specific slant, you'll notice, and this began really in earnest in the 1950s, speeding up through the 60s and 70s about the future of mankind with bioethics and how the scientists were going to create this wonderful utopia where everyone will just be happy. Uh, happiness apparently is the sole reason for being, they keep telling us. But they would make us all happy with drugs and, and little things in our brain and wires coming out and or different techniques even though the wiring stuff was nonsense they'd already done the remote stuff long before at the higher levels on the bottom level they do research and in our system we're conditioned to believe by everything you buy on the shelves and even the science magazines and the science programs they give you 
that we're on the cutting edge of reality. And when you swallow that, you'll never think beyond it and say, my God, they've done this long ago. This is the bottom. This is obsolete stuff. Everything that's new is given to you is obsolete. That's why you can't figure it out. And they do fund scientists at the bottom level to do research. The searching's already been done. And they start from scratch again. And when they discover something, they let it out into the newspapers as though it's the first time. Then they believe it themselves at that level. But these science books are always so optimistic, you see. They come out and point out some of the dangers, but they, they blithely go over them and go into what the possibilities of what could be done. Now, we know the history of humankind uh, and that power is never shared with the vast populace of any nation or people. It's never happened before. In fact, the sciences in ancient times were how to control the minds of the public back then so as the dominant minority could live off them in luxury without too much trouble. That hasn't changed. It won't change. And through books, as I mentioned before, like Charles Galton Darwin's book, The Next Million Years, he makes it quite clear that the dominant minority will stay in control, and so does Aldo Huxley. But there are many more of these guys who are put out there to make us, to, to almost make us want what they promise us, you see. They always tell us that, that it's going to be so wonderful. Now, the newspapers in the 1960s were coming out with all this stuff that, oh, by the year 2000, work will be scarce, and it will be a privilege to get a job. The rest of the public would be walking around in Roman togas and just discussing poetry and, uh, and uh, astronomy or whatever, just to pass the time. There'd be no hunger in the world, and everyone would be just living and walking on clouds. And this is the, the nonsense that they fed the public to put them to sleep as the real wolves moved ahead with their agenda. Now, one of the books, which is very telling, is called The Second Genesis. There are different editions of it. It was first published in 1969 with subsequent editions right through the 70s, maybe beyond. The author is Albert Rosenfeld, and the ISBN number is 0-394-71214-5. It's well worth looking into. This is the kind of book that was put out for the public, but certainly had lots of input from many, many different uh, major universities and professors who were living on grants, because professors live on various grants for research given to them by governments and the foundations. That's how you direct society in specific areas. When you want something to come to pass, you, you simply fund the research into it. If you don't want to go in another direction, you withhold funds and it won't happen. It's very easy, really, when you have all the money in the world. Now, this particular technique that they talk about in bioethics of controlling each individual is called B 
BSP. And in Life magazine, in 1965, they published a four-part series called The Control of Life. Uh, supposedly, and on this guy's version here, of course, he's telling you it was to call the public's attention to the vast implications of biomedical advance and to get them ready, give them a sense of urgency uh, because the, the scientific circles wanted, it was almost like confirmation. This is how they do things. They want us to confirm what they want us to do, a legality. And people, the people who are leading this charge in the 60s, um, one of them was Litterberg, and one was our famous hero, our savior, Dr. Salk, very shady guy, the guy that gave us the polio inoculation, who, b who belonged to the eugenic societies. He believed in population reductions. He put books out prior to the polio vaccine on that very subject. He belonged to the biggest research organizations into the alteration and control of all life, but especially human life. And he, then he became our savior, and he could not quite ever in any interview rationalize why he, he wanted to save society and yet reduce the population at the same time. So, BSP and the case for tomorrow. Eh? What is BSP? Uh, one guy who supposedly gave the title of, of this thing, this BSP, was Dr. Richard Farson, director of Western Behavioral Sciences Institute. The behavioral sciences are some of the, one of the most important areas working hand in glove with pharmacological companies and even electric electromagnetic type impulse organizations working for governments on the same thing controlling the mind uh, and some people who become the heroes of the new age movement by the way have degrees in behavioral sciences that should be a warning sign right there one lives in the U.S. and has been well funded to put out various books on various kinds of good vibrations. BPS, according to Webster's Unabridged Dictionary, means anticipation. The whole word is biosocioprolepsis. Anticipation, a figure by which objections are anticipated in order to weaken their, their force. So you anticipate, this is their technique in the chess game they play on the public, they anticipate all objections before they release the information. And then they have all the answers ready for the objections. It's quite simple, really. So... The art or science of prognosis, by projecting our imaginations ahead into our possible choice of social futures, we try to anticipate the dangers inherent in biomedical advance and to forestall them by our foresight. Prolepsis will here be stretched to mean as well, anticipating the hopes and benefits in order to foresee ways to take advantage of them. Bio is for biology, socio for sociology, Biosocioprolepsis, then, is the anticipation of biology's impact on society. 
let's call it BSP for short. Now this book is a, a classic example of how they tell you some of the bad news but tell you to look on the bright side because they want your cooperation to go along with this agenda. It's almost a very happy talk type book as they discuss very horrible things in the nicest possible way. Very much like the way Aldo Huxley talks or he talked to his, his various audiences. If you sat back, you'd think the guy's a really pleasant character until you really listen to what he's really saying. We've been taught that guys like Adolf Hitler scream and rant about these things, and so we have that in our mind. So when someone is so pleasant and nice and talks about them, and even puts some humor into it, we laugh and, and think, what a swell guy. Back to the book. One of the the chapters is called Behavior by Push Button. This is after he goes through the recreation of life. He goes through the fact that they will create specific humans for specific tasks that eventually marriage would be outdated, which they knew they'd have to destroy to, to bring all this. They knew that before Karl Marx came along and said the same thing, the destruction of the family unit. Because the real sciences are much older than what this guy is letting on. The prospect arises then that we might learn to control human behavior by learning to change at will the patterns in our brain cells, by learning, as it were, to untwist the twisted molecules. Untwisting could mean restructuring the cellular molecules in any way, rearranging their constituent atoms, taking away or adding a few ingredients, modifying the chemical or electrical activity. Ultimately, chemistry and electricity come down to the same thing, the movements and rearrangements of electrons. Thus, it is proper to think of the electrochemistry of the brain as an entity or as a closely related series of processes and events that take place in the real four-dimensional physical world and which are therefore subject to both observation and manipulation. Manipulating the electrons of the brain, then, would equal manipulating human behavior. He goes on, then, to talk about uh, a very interesting character who worked for the CIA. He doesn't mention that in his book, of course, but most of these guys who give us these books, and probably this guy himself, the author, worked for the CIA. But uh, this particular one, uh, it did leak out eventually, and it was declassified, Dr. Jose M.R. Delgado of the Yale University Medical School, who was a pioneer researcher in this area of brain research. Well, Delgado worked for the CIA, and he found that by remote radio stimulation of certain areas of the brain, by the implantation of tiny electrodes, surgically implanted, he could set in motion various sequences of activities Delgado, in a lecture at New York's Museum of Natural History, described one facet of his work with an experimental monkey named Ludi. Now, I hope people are not so far gone that they haven't asked themselves the questions. And all these shows that they've watched on television, and, and the public 
broadcasting services are some of the worst at for the nature stuff and the animals. And then going to the scientific part where they dissect different animals and stimulate them and shock them. And I hope they don't, the public don't think that all this research done on frogs, rats and mice and monkeys is because they want to make monkeys, rats and mice a new utopia for themselves. Not all this research was done to be used on human beings. Here we come, walking down the street. We get the funniest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, we're the monkeys, and people say we monkey around. But we're too busy singing to put anybody down. We go where we want to. What we like to do We don't want the time to get restless There's always something new Hey, hey, we're the monkeys And people say we monkey around But we're too busy singing To put anybody down We're just trying to be friendly Come and watch us sing and play We're the young generation And we've got something so when they're sticking the implants in these animals and stimulating areas of the brain, it was all to do with ultimately using on, on humans. Silly. So this is Delgado. After different areas of the brain had been studied under restraint, the radio stimulator was strapped to Ludi and excitations of the rostral part of the red nucleus were started, with the monkeys free in the colony. Stimulation produced the following complex sequence of responses. Immediate interruption of spontaneous activities, changes in facial expression, head turning to the right, standing on two feet, circling to the right, walking on two feet with perfect preservation of equilibrium by balancing the arms, touching the walls of the cage, or grasping the swings, climbing a pole on the back wall of the cage, descending to the floor, low-tone vocalization, threatening attitude towards subordinate monkeys, changing of attitude and peaceful approaching some other members of the colony and resumption of the activity interrupted by the stimulation. Now, Delgado was made famous by another experiment to do with a bull who went into a a bullfighting ring, and the bull had been implanted with remote sensors in his brain. And as it charged towards him, he clicked the switch and it stopped dead and turned to the right when he flicked another switch and turned to the left. But very, very impressive, you see, how they can uh, manipulate creatures. And a control freak's paradise, really, because he certainly was one of them. These people have no conscience. Personally, I don't think they are human. If we describe what a human is, they're not humane in any way whatsoever. They're psychopathic. Now, this book goes into so many areas of society, sexuality, it asks the questions which are being asked now that what is the purpose of life, you see, because that's, the, that's generally how they get you, is to 
gradually slice away at everything that is the culture, even though that was given to us too. They slice it apart to your left like a peeled banana, wondering what it's all about. And their, their answer to all of this is to almost ascend to godhood by rearranging matter by the total control of matter, which they get very excited about. And there's so much in this particular book, one of many, as I say, that's not pushed on the mainstream media because they don't want Joe Average really reading this kind of stuff. And it's true enough, the public will only think about what the media tells them to be concerned about. They can tell us horrific things casually in between sports announcements and it doesn't stay in memory. But they tell us what to worry about and think about. Now these fellows who give us this propaganda always push first and foremost how it will benefit specific individuals who have chronic diseases or whatever it happens to be. That's the standard way of getting the public's approval to go ahead into some monstrosity that will affect everyone. It's hard for the average individual to, to look at some child who's dying of something, but this will save them. But this will open up a whole new area of dialogue because it's, it's against what was accepted as the norm, what was socially acceptable before, and, and so on. So they always give us the poor souls first, even though the real agenda is to control all of society. And here's how he does it here. ESB can reverse the normal. And he puts normal in quotation marks because he's well aware that normal is whatever the culture at the time says is normal. He should know because he works for the culture creators. Control of the brain would also provide control of those primitive areas which in turn control the basic functions of the body. Now, the primitive areas, as he calls it, those areas are what gives you your survival instincts. That's what he means by it, the primitive areas. Your fight or flight responses. The same thing at uh, Kessler, who also worked for the big think tanks, said we won't need any more because the state will be making all the decisions for the public. And, but he also added those in control must remain unaltered because they must have their survival instincts intact since they will be steering the ship of planet Earth. To continue with the book, buried at the base of the brain, Dr. Joel Elks of Johns Hopkins points out, in the midline, the center of the head, there are old, old regions concerned clearly with survival. These areas of control, control respiration, pulse rate, blood pressure, govern salt balance and temperature control, guide certain built-in instinctual responses such as hunger, thirst, fight, flight, play, sleep, wakefulness, and sex. These are the steering centers of the cerebral machinery. ESB experiments have indeed already shown that an animal can be induced to starve itself, though it has gone hungry for some time or gorge itself, though it has just eaten, 
or to perform sexually far beyond its normal capacity. The kinds of control that can be exerted on animals and men oh, by ESB range all the way from simple muscular movements to fairly complex social behavior. It has been known at least since the 19th century that electrical stimulation of the cerebral cortex could produce motor responses in animals. But until recently, it was assumed that this could be achieved only with anesthetized animals and that the movements would be clumsy and imprecise. And that's a lie right there because they were using animals that had not been anesthetized long, long before. He just, he just won't remember, uh, mention the much, much older books. But the newer techniques and miniaturized apparatus that made ESB possible have made it evident, as Delgado says, that motor performance under electronic command could be as complex and precise as spontaneous behavior. Del Delgado describes an induced leg movement, such as the flexing of a hind leg in a laboratory cat, as an example. Now, if they were saying in, in a a captive prisoner or a patient, we'd, we'd be horrified. But see, they're trying to, to put it into the animal uh, side. And even then, you see, they didn't have the animal movements that would go up in arms like, like they do today. So they were more open by using this technique back then. And, and these guys, really, uh, whether it's animal or human, they just salivate more when they're doing their experiments if they have a, a real human to experiment on. The, the, these characters are totally psychopathic with the things they do to, to animals as well. And then he, g he goes on to justify the, how they could move this cat's particular limb spontaneously with the push of a button. Then he says, did all of these ESB commands disturb the cat emotionally? He's a cat with, with, with all these little wires and electrodes in his brain, right? Hmm? On the contrary, the cat was alert and friendly as usual. Rubbing its head against the experimenter, probably sparks coming off it, seeking to be petted and even purring. However, if we try to prevent an evoked effect by holding the left, leg, the left hind legs with her hands, the cat stopped purring and struggled to get free and shook its leg. Apparently, the evoked motility was not unpleasant. Oh, it wasn't pleasant, unpleasant. It was happy, you see. But attempts to prevent it were disturbing for the animals. So it had to follow through with its command or it would be disturbed. Uh, it goes on to talk about Delgado's further comment on the cat experiment. The artificial driving of motor activities was accepted in such a natural way by the animal that often there was spontaneous initiative to cooperate with electrical command. For example, during a moment of precarious balance, when all paws were close together, stimulation produced first a postural adjustment a postural adjustment, and the cat spread its forelegs to achieve equilibrium by shifting its body weight to the right. And only after this delay did the left hind leg begin to flex. A variety of motor effects have been evoked in different species, including cat, dog, bull, and monkey. The animals could be induced to move the legs, raise or lower the body, open or close the mouth, walk or lie still, turn around and perform a variety of responses with predictable reliability, as if they were electric toys under human control. Moreover, animals seem to enjoy being stimulated electrically, another disquieting phenomenon if, if translatable to people. Oh, really? Huh? They enjoy it. Going beyond these simple motor activities, 
and the more complex sequence of activities described earlier, Delgado and others found they could also affect moods, attitudes, and even the basic character the basic character of individual animals, which in turn affected the behavior of other animals by stimulating the appropriate points or regions of the brain. A cat can be induced to start a fight with another cat or a dog much larger than itself or to cringe from a mouse, depending on the brain area getting the signals. I guess they'll meet the military, the ones that are aggressive, and the people, the ones that are cringing. A peaceful animal can be made to snarl and turn belligerent, while a normally aggressive animal can do, do can be rendered docile. Rhesus monkeys, says Delgado, are destructive and dangerous creatures which do not hesitate to bite anything within reach. I don't blame them, including leads, instrumentation, and occasionally an experimenter's hands. Well, I think I'd be biting them too. Would it be possible to tame these ferocious animals by means of electrical stimulation? To investigate the question, the monkey was strapped to a chair where it made faces and threatened. Oh, it threatened the scientist. I guess he could club it to death, maybe, eh? Until the investigator under the rostral part of the, the caudal nucleus was electrically stimulated. At this moment, the monkey lost its aggressive expression and did not try to grab or bite the experimenter who could safely put a finger in its mouth. As soon as stimulation was discontinued, the monkey was as aggressive as before. Later, Delgado goes on, Similar experiments were repeated with the monkeys free inside the colony, and it was evident that their autocratic social structure could be manipulated by radio stimulation. The boss monkey under ESP lost his aggressiveness, and the other monkeys crowded him without fear. This went on for about an hour, but 12 minutes after the stimulation ended, the boss had reasserted his authority. In similar experiments at the Yerkes Regional Primate Center, Dr. Brian W. Robinson noted that at first one, then the other male became dominant. The female switched her allegiance to the dominant male and then turned about and attacked the other guy. In an even more interesting version of the experiment, Delgado observed that the other monkeys in the colony learned to press a lever in the cage which triggered stimulation of the boss monkey in the caudate nucleus, inhibiting, inhibiting his aggressive behavior. Thus, one monkey was deliberately controlling the behavior of another by means of ESB, a truly impressive demonstration of how little needs to be understood to exercise quite a lot of control. <laughs> oh, boy, there's all sweethearts, these guys, eh? Now, then he goes into the management of aggression. Remember, aggression, in its proper setting, is a, a defense survival mechanism. Very important to the controllers, as we can see, as they turn countries into armed camps, kind of with the barbed wire facing inwards. Management of aggression. This is not an idle question. The uses of ESB in the control of human aggression have already been convincingly demonstrated at a clinic in Boston, which makes a specialty of studying violent behavior. It was organized in 67 by a team of medical scientists attached to Harvard Medical School, Massachusetts General Hospital, and Boston City Hospital. The group includes two outstanding brain surgeons, Dr. Mark and Dr. Sweet. <laughs> Dr. Sweet. <laughs> uh, no sour grapes there, eh? And its full-time head is a psychiatrist, Dr. Frank R. Irvin. A typical clinic patient has poor impulse control with a quick flaring temper and a history of repeated violent episodes. 
Many of these patients are incredibly destructive of property and they may beat their wives, husbands or children with astonishing ferocity. One young wife who came in recently for help said that she had assaulted her husband, fortunately a very large, very tolerant man, 537 times in the last six years, with everything from fists to dishes to furniture. Violent people also frequently vent their impulses through sexual assault or multiple automobile accidents. Aggressive drivers. Though the violent patient usually has a reason for his uncontrolled rages, the reason can be incredibly flimsy. Now, what they're doing is, is putting down, you see, any, any counter to what they're about to, to tell you, what they, they do. And they go on to do with, oh, they help an epileptic. Uh, they don't name the epileptic. I very much doubt that they'll show you one. one but they claim they could actually cure an epileptic by implanting a, a chip in the brain and giving them the switch so that when they felt it coming on, they could, they could flip the switch. And no doubt they'd have, a, they'd have a quiet seizure or something. Or maybe they'd have an orgasm, because he goes on about that as well, how they can, they can make you have an orgasm. Uh, this guy probably went on to work with the company that makes Viagra. Now, sometimes even relatively simple surgery, if any brain surgery can be called simple, can help for a time. This is for, to help poor, poor souls with different problems. At the Indiana University Medical Center, Dr. Robert Heinberger has found that by touching the afflicted area of the brain with a delicate... Now, here's how they put it here. <laughs> so they give you a scientific term for something that's like putting a club uh, with a frozen end of it on your, your brain itself. Cryosurgical probe. It's a cryosurgical probe, you see. An instrument with a frozen tip. But it sounds more impressive, you see. Cryosurgical probe. He can destroy the diseased tissue. Diseased tissue, now, there's no visible sign of a disease, but because it's a behavior they're talking about which they don't want in people, they call it diseased. See, it's very tricky how they word things, and you read things casually. Your impressions are being given to you, the impressions they want you to have. In many of the cases handled by Dr. Sweet <laughs> and Dr. Mark, I guess he marked a lot of brains. The brain damage is not obvious. In many of the cases, see, the brain damage is not obvious. That's to lay your, your, your anxiety. In many, that means not all. But examination in depth usually turns up some abnormality in tissue. Damage that is perhaps congenital. Perhaps you've got a congenital problem. This is another thing with the behaviorist and so on. Perhaps the result of blows on the head. It's probably the scientists that did it, but you know, as they were drilling into your skull, or some viral infection that reached the brain. In other words, it could be any of these probable or possible theories, 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 guesses, you see. There's lately been much interest in genetic causes of these abnormalities too, especially since a recent case in France where a violent criminal was found to possess abnormal XYY chromosome. We're always hearing about this one. The Boston Group has already incorporated cell geneticists into the team to study these latest possibilities. All this obviously has important implications for criminology and penology. Oh, the cops will love that when they, they've got everybody, everybody chipped. And if you see anything which is out of the norm, you see they can just switch little gizmos and, and you'll be a little robot again. 
When I earlier recited the imaginary example of a rapist being cured of his tendencies on an imaginary example, see, they give you lots of imaginary examples, transformed by brain surgery from a sadistic brute into a gentleman of sweet disposition, it probably seemed far-fetched. But we can now see that the possibility would be more immediate than anyone imagined. Early in 1968, a British court handed over a young, incorrigible, a compulsive gambler to doctors for treatment by a lachotomy operation. It's interesting that most of the gambling establishments across the country here, and most countries now, were run and sponsored by the government. Hmm. After the story appeared in the London Times, the British Medical Journal expressed its qualms about this sort of procedure might lead to, in terms of sentencing criminals to treatment instead of to jail. Yet the precedent is already established. In cases of insanity, the criminal is often turned over for psychiatric treatment rather than sentenced to prison, though he may spend an equally long time in confinement, on the grounds that it was his mental illness rather than the man himself that was at fault. Will the presence of brain damage or a bad chromosome soon be sufficient to absolve a criminal of guilt on the same grounds? But he doesn't mention, would that also give him the right to perhaps lobotomize you before you ever did anything at all, if you ever did, that is. Turning on the pleasure centers for all the happy people, for the optimists out there. Of all ESB experiments, this is the happy part you're supposed to think about and remember. Carried out with animals, perhaps none was more astonishing than the series back in 53 and 1954, in which Dr. James Olds, then at McGill University in Montreal, accidentally discovered the brain's pleasure centers. He had just learned how to implant electrodes in rat brains, preparatory to studying rat behavior. But he was curious to know if the ESP technique itself might so disturb and distract the rats as to spoil his experiment. I went up to the lab one Sunday afternoon, he recalls, and took the first rat I had ever prepared with my own hands. Every time the rat walked into one corner of the testing table, I turned on the electricity to see, turned on the electricity to see if he would avoid approaching that spot thereafter. Instead, my rat liked it, he says. See, this is for the optimist, you see. Pursuing this windfall, instead of his original idea, Olds refined his techniques, found that he could, by ESP, or B, <laughs> ESP, produce at will a state of bliss in the rat. Other researchers eagerly followed the old lead. See, the eager part here, they're all eager for their grants as they go and, 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 and plant stuff and cut and slash and cauterize and, and shock things. Okay, Coffin writes, Many sites seem to be identified with specific pleasures, such as those of food, drink, and sex, your basic, basic drives. But sometimes ESB sets up a complex generalized response. This may indicate a higher satisfaction independent of specific pleasures, or possibly, Dr. Old suspects, that particular pleasure sites are packed close together and several are stimulated by one large dose of ESB. The nature of this feeling of pleasure is scarcely definable. Some have guessed <laughs> that it combines the mystical raptures of the saints with the fleshly raptures of the sinners and diffused ineffable delight. Well, that's a good guess, eh, for the optimist. In any case, animals find the sensation completely irresistible. Well, so would I if I was getting shot. Jump. Okay, okay. A white rat, if allowed to regulate its own ESB dosage by pressing a lever in its cage, 
will continue to press it at a fantastic rate of up to 8,000 times an hour until hunger, thirst, or exhaustion forced an interruption. But interruption is brief. A sip, a bite or two, a few minutes nap, and the rat returns to its orgy of pleasures. An experiment by Dr. Joseph V. Brady at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. Oh, the army's in it too, eh? Rats went on its way for 24 hours a day for three straight weeks. One would expect that such symbaritic rats would eventually wear themselves to a frazzle, burn themselves out before they were 30 days old. But to the contrary, the ones at Walter Reed showed no physical or mental damage then or later. What liars they are, these guys, eh? And Dr. Old's rats, after a series of ESB marathons, cumulatively totaling hundreds of days, have seemed to be in better health and fetal than their litter mates who were raised in identical conditions, but without ESB. So ESB is good for you. There's what you're supposed to remember. So there you are, an orgasmic, perpetual orgasmic episode without eating or drinking and getting burnt or frazzle is good for you. And here we have had the old priesthood that gave us our reality for centuries told us we'd go blind if we did that. And we'd grow hair on the palms of our hands. And you come to think of it, these new white-coated priesthoods could actually give us hair in our palms of our hands and everywhere else in our body if they want to, and they've actually published that. Mind you, if they did that, we would need clothing in colder climes, and all those factories in China would go out of business, and then unemployment rate would rise. What I'm showing you here is that nothing is new. The little snippets you're getting in the news today are simply meant to program you into the next phase of acceptance of what we're supposed to think of as is inevitable. Now, no one in the public sphere has said that science has the right to do as it wants with people. But this ties in, you see, with this strange saying we have that you can't stop progress. And by that they mean science. Well, believe you me, if the dominant minority in any age wished science to stop any particular area of experimentation, it would be done immediately. And the reason they're going into all of this is for controlling all of society. On this website, my website, you can find Huxley's speech at Berkeley. And listen to him talk about that, too. He said, most people you see are unhappy. This is how he tries to rationalize where we're supposed to go. Therefore, what's the problem about putting things in their brain to change their behavior or their moods? That's how he rationalizes it to the public. Mind you, he didn't talk at any old university. He talked to the Ivy League ones in more detail because those guys were going off into government positions and bureaucracies and scientific establishments 
or right to the foundations that pay for all of this. The foundations themselves don't do anything without permission of the dominant minority. Everything in the pyramid comes from the capstone in this system. We have monsters running the world for us. They had solid state circuitry, micro circuitry, microchips back in the 1950s, before the public had even heard of the transistor, which changed everything from the old tube system in radios and televisions. Then came out the transistor radio and different components, which were soldered into circuit boards. And then the next step, the next, the next phase was to go in eventually in the 80s into solid state gradually. But they had solid state back in the 50s, and the CIA were using it. And the equipment that Nick Biggie showed on television in Canada. And guess what the, 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 the technology was doing with these little handheld remotes? They could put thoughts in a person's brain. You know, what a coincidence, huh? And yet here's this other character with this book here. Not mentioning that aspect of it, or the fact that they even were doing that. Maybe he was unaware of it at his level. Or maybe he was in on it. Because they must always make the public think, as I say, that you're on the cutting edge. And that's what the news is there to do, with little programs and special documentaries. on, on the, the breakthroughs they're trying to find and get to. And, and when we believe that, we never figure out, my God, they're, they're way ahead of all these phases. That's why you have total control over everything. And power does not share itself. That's why it's so secretive. Governments across the planet have already admitted they've tested various agents, virals, bacteriums out on their own populations for warfare purposes and other reasons. Don't think for a minute they did not implant certain people throughout the Western world, at least the Western world, and test each these chips out long ago because they did. The enemy is never over there. The enemy happens to be the ones you're trained to look up to and respect and admire. That's all for me tonight. I'll continue some more reading with my next talk. May your God go with you.